Today's episode was sponsored by Susie Osaki Home. Thank you so much for your generosity. Are you interested in sponsoring an episode? Contact us at host at mincentralcurrents.org to learn more about how you can directly support local independent journalism. There has been a lot of news lately about the presence of microplastics in everything from our food and water to our beer and our bodies. How did this even happen? This is Min Central Currents. I'm your host, Teresa Meese. Today, I'm joined by Mary Kasuth, research assistant and PhD student at the U of M School of Public Health, to discuss what microplastics are, why we should be concerned about them, and what, if anything, we can do to start mitigating the amount of plastic waste in our world. Before we jump into this episode, since we are talking about plastics and microplastics, I did ask our guest, Mary, to please give us a couple definitions to ease us into the conversation. So plastics, uh, we also think of as synthetic polymers, and a polymer just means many parts. So if you can imagine a chain like a beaded necklace um, that's made up of repeated units, and nature makes all kinds of polymers, you know, things like silk, cellulose, wool. DNA, all of these are natural polymers. Synthetic polymers are unique because they're human-made. Um, you might have some semi-synthetics, like celluloid, which is made by humans, but the raw materials come from the cell wall of plants. Um, the same is true for rayon. Uh, but true synthetic polymers are made from crude oil or petroleum. And uh, and these include things like, um, like oil and natural gas. So while you might, you know, I, I always say, while you might enjoy a patch of wild strawberries, if you're out hiking in the woods, you're never going to stumble upon a patch of wild neoprene. So um, that's our definition of plastic. Microplastic has to be smaller than five millimeters. I always say that it's maybe the width of a pencil eraser, because that's something we can all relate to. Um, I was initially told that marine law forbade the dumping of particles, uh, garbage waste that was smaller than five millimeters, and that's why the size up to five millimeters was originally used in uh, early studies. Um, but more and more now, particles of interest tend to be um, smaller. So maybe like one millimeter, which is the sharpened end of the pencil, and smaller than that. If you take that sharpened end and divide it into like a thousand even parts, each one will be uh, a micrometer. And it's not uncommon to see papers that describe things smaller yet on the nanometer scale. So we're really talking about things um, as small as like a cross-section of human hair um, down to things that are really very small. And with those definitions now well in our minds, let's get on to the interview. Thank you so much for joining me, Mary. I guess I'd like to start with asking you a little bit about your background in the sciences. My background, um, I probably spent no fewer than 14 years of my childhood in Duluth, Minnesota. Uh, my family did a lot of outdoor activities. You know, we went camping and canoeing and hiking and fishing and you name it. Um, and those early experiences are probably why I ended up pursuing an undergraduate degree in ecology, 
because like most Minnesotans, I love our lakes. I love being in the woods, but I was also curious about natural systems and I wanted to understand how they work. So after college, I held a position at the Bell Museum of Natural History for about three years and then taught overseas in China, uh, which was actually my second uh, experience living in China. I lived there also when I was eight. And both of those experiences gave me some valuable perspective about my life in Minnesota. Um, anyways, when I returned to the States, I started teaching environmental science classes at Dunwoody College. And in order to improve my curriculum, I was always reading books on environmental health science topics. Since I was personally interested in environmental and industrial health and safety, I really felt fortunate that I had this job where I could spend both work time and free time educating myself. It never really felt like work, which is, I think, an indication of a job that you like your job. Um, so then in 2009, I had my first child, and while I was on maternity leave, I felt quite glued to the couch with my new infant, and I had nothing else to do really but read, and I just happened to be reading books about health and safety of consumer products. So for example, I read a book called Exposed by Mark Shapiro after my son was born, and then, and that was in 2009, and then in 2013, after my daughter was born, I read a book called Slow Death by Rubber Duck by two Canadian authors, Smith and Laurie. And that's when I learned about um, things like polybrominated diethyl ethers, which are a large family of chemicals that are used as flame retardants. They're found in all kinds of consumer products from electronics to upholstery. And that's also where I learned about plastic additives like bisphenol and uh, plasticizers like phthalates and, and a whole bunch of other chemicals. Um, so as you can imagine, it doesn't really require a huge mental leap from putting the reading a chapter of this and putting the book down and then looking at my nursing son or looking at my my daughter and just wondering what chemicals are in our couch cushions, you know, or, or looking at the bubbling vat of plastic bottles that we were sterilizing every night and wondering if plastic additives were leaching from them or, or wondering why the pajamas that I bought for my daughter say that they don't contain flame retardants. You know, like, what does that mean? Um, does that mean all other pajamas do have flame retardants? And and if they do, which ones? And how can I, as a consumer, find out? You know, I think these are reasonable questions to have. Um, I was born in 1978, so I kind of dodged the whole Tris BP uh, in children's pajamas thing. I don't know if you're familiar with that bit of history, um, but there was a, a flame retardant called Tris 2,3-dibromopropyl phosphate. Um, that was uh, used in uh, the clothing of uh, children and the metabolites for this chemical, which is the body releases after it processes it, was found in the urine of children who had been sleeping with these treated garments. And TRIS-BP was found to be uh, mutagenic and carcinogenic and we were dressing our children in this stuff. And so after this was discovered, after we had some scientific evidence that this material was getting into the bodies of our children, the clothing was pulled from the shelves. So one might think after an experience like that, we would be very careful about what we put in consumer products, especially um, when they're used by the most vulnerable members of our society, our children. But it still feels like there's very little transparency. Um, uh, as far as, as that goes. So uh, one afternoon, I, I vividly recall putting my boy down uh, in his bouncy chair so that I could take the covers off of my couch to see if they'd been stamped with the California standard for flame retardants, right? Who would do that? No one would do that unless um, you were aware of it. So it was kind of an aha moment for me. Um, that's when I thought, wow, we have all this detailed nutritional information on the sides of cereal boxes. But when it comes to other consumer goods, what do we really know about how they were manufactured and what they might contain? 
Um, and I, I understand, I appreciate the fact that this is kind of an intuitive and an emotional response. It's very personal. It comes from a place of concern about uh, the health and safety of my own children. And, uh, but I also had a background in science and, and I thought these books raised really important questions and I thought they were very well researched and cited, but I wanted to know more. I wanted to dig into the nuance. I wanted to, to know from the primary literature what they were saying about how toxic this stuff really was and, and, and the extent of human exposure. So that's when I decided to enroll uh, in the University of Minnesota School of Public Health and start working on a master's of science. Yeah, I, I recall around that time I was pregnant with my daughter when I took the GREs and my son was probably about three years old and he was climbing over everything, which means that every week I was busy like vacuuming the, the windowsill wells uh, because I was afraid that there was like leaded dust that was coming into our house. I mean, it does kind of change your perspective when you when you are aware of these things. And, but I also remember, you know, talking to there's a lot of uh, construction management students at Dunwoody college. And I, I remember chatting with them about this and other people, you know, that are established in this field. And they, they kind of sometimes, not all of them, but sometimes they felt a little bit like they were flippant about exposures. Like they might just say, oh, just don't eat the paint chips. Or yeah, you might have asbestos in your popcorn ceiling, but as long as you don't disturb it, it's fine, you know. But when it's your own children, you know, you tend to be more attentive um, and maybe concerned about these things. So while I was working on that degree part-time because I was still full-time at Dunwoody, I attended a webinar at the Minnesota Department of Health because I was interning there. This was in 2015. Um, and while I was there, this USGS researcher was in the middle of a microplastic pollution survey that involved 29 Great Lake tributaries. And I'd heard about microplastic pollutions before, way back in 2003, when this fellow named Charles, uh, Captain Charles Moore, when he was talking about it on the radio. But like a lot of people in 2015, I only knew about it as a problem in the ocean. You know, I didn't know it was a problem in freshwater systems. And, and quite frankly, nobody did until two years prior to this river study in 2013. That was the first study that involved freshwater um, where th three of the five Great Lakes were trawled and tested for microplastic pollution. So anyways, the author of this river study, his name is uh, Austin Baldwin, he put me in contact with one of the researchers who was involved in the Great Lakes study. Her name is Sam Mason. And that's when I was given an opportunity to kind of be involved in this research. And um, that deep dive into the literature that I wanted so badly when I was just a new mom, uh, uh, I totally got that. So in 2019, there was a paper by Gro et al. There's a lot of authors on, on this particular paper, and it was called Overview of Known Plastic Packaging Associated Chemicals and Their Hazards. And the authors compiled, compiled a list of chemicals used in the manufacture of plastic packaging both in the processing and in the final product, and they listed some 906 chemicals. And of that list uh, of total chemicals, 63 ranked high for human health hazard and 68 ranked high for environmental hazard. Um, 34 of them were endocrine disrupting chemicals, which means they can interfere with your body's hormones. Um, but what the authors also said that really stuck with me is that this information about manufacturing these products and the toxicity of the material is, is very difficult to come by. If we, members of the public, want to make informed decisions about what we buy, how are we supposed to do that if a group of very smart scientists can't even ferret out this information, if they're finding it challenging? Now, you were lead author on a study of tap water, beer, and salt, looking to measure microplastic presence in each of those. Could you tell us what your study found? Absolutely. 
Um, yeah, so we tested 12 brands of internationally sourced table salt. Um, I just went to local grocery stores and specialty shops uh, to get the salt. We also tested 12 regional beers. Um, some of them were small scale breweries and some of them were larger and they had national or um, international markets even. Um, and But all of the 12 beers had water that were sourced from the five Great Lakes. So we had three brands from Lake Superior, four from Lake Michigan, one from Lake Huron, two from Erie, and two from Lake Ontario. Um, we decided to test beer and salt because in 2014, a German study had already looked at 24 brands of German beer. And in 2015, a Chinese study had looked at 15 brands of Chinese salt. So my research advisor, Sam Mason, um, read these papers and wanted to know if we would find the same if we kind of replicated these in the Midwest. Um, and so while we were working on that, a nonprofit international media organization called Orb Media wanted to do a study on global tap water uh, that had to do with microplastics. So we ended up kind of folding that into our paper as well as sort of a third, third part. Um, our work was published in 2018. It wasn't the first paper, again, about microplastic contamination in beer and salt, but it was the first global tap water survey. And uh, I think I'll just emphasize the fact that it really was just a survey. Like you really can't glean, you, you can't um, really know how much microplastic contamination there is in Italian water from one sample, right? But it's just one of those um, surveys that, that involved, it ended up uh, involving 14 uh, different nations that, I didn't even know where the, the samples were coming from until after the study was over because it was um, blinded in that way. Uh, but we had 159 total water samples and we found 81% um, of them were contaminated. Uh, the average amount was something like 5.47 particles per liter. Um, and in the beer, uh, it was about four particles per liter and in salt, um, 212 particles per kilogram, which a kilogram of salt is quite a lot. So, um, but yeah, I mean, there were very few, uh, very few samples that didn't have anything in them. So I can't think that's kind of a big takeaway. Um, and tap water studies have since been published. Uh, some were, there was one from Germany, one from the Czech Republic, China, Mexico, um, and some of the numbers uh, were higher and some of them were lower than ours. Um, there have been some reviews about global salt contamination too. Um, the most recent one that I read had nine salt studies included. And of those nine studies, 118 brands were tested. Uh, I'm sorry, 126 commercial brands were tested and 118 of them tested positive for microplastics. So that's about 94%, it's, it's out there. Was there a, a big difference in the salt source between the sea salt and mined salt? That's a great question. Um, we had two brands that came from land um, and the rest were, were seas uh, or ocean. You know, I only had, the only thing I could go by really was um, what was on the package, which can be quite minimal. You know, I didn't really, I didn't call the companies and ask them about their processing. It would be really interesting to do some more research in food and beverage processing to kind of get an idea for that. Like, where's the stuff exactly? Where is it being introduced? When and how? We didn't see a huge difference, um, but the Chinese study that came out in 2015, they had looked at uh, coastal seas, they looked at inland lakes, and they looked at mined salt. 
and they found particles in all of them, which doesn't necessarily mean that plastics are deep in the ground. It just means that during the processing, there's poss possibility for the material being introduced, you know. And there's when you think about how ubiquitous this stuff is, it's uh, it's not terribly surprising, maybe. Um, but it takes that moment of thinking about how ubiquitous it is first and appreciating how pervasive it is. Have you been able to identify if there is one specific kind of plastic that is more ubiquitous, that is part of the consumer um, use chain that we as individuals can either try to use less of or handle better? Um, I mean, when you look at the total amounts of plastic that's generated, if you look at global production and you look at like the five top, you know, um, types of plastic that are that are made, and then you look at the types of plastics that are found, for example, in water systems, like there was a study uh, that Coleman did. Um, it was a review that looked at, I want to say, 55 different types of water, you know, surface water, wastewater, um, it included tap water, all kinds of water. And they found that the types of the plastics that are most commonly found in waters are the types of plastics that we produce. So, you know, there's definitely a general correlation between that. But one of the challenges in this field is trying to figure out where a particle comes from. You know, like I, um, two winters ago, just sampled snow in my backyard and found a tiny little shard of polyethylene there. And where did it come from? You know, so there are some kind of hints and clues. Uh, it's a little bit like, I don't know, forensics, you know, you're trying to figure out where something uh, originated from. So when you're looking at a, a shard of plastic under um, an electron microscope, then you might start to see grooves and pits and you can kind of do some um, analysis on uh, the colors and the weathering of the particle to get a good idea of how long it's been in the ocean, you know, but, um, but, but, a, but absolute sources are still really I mean, we have a pretty good idea of where it could be coming from, but the absolute source of any one particular particle that we find is really hard to, really hard to know. Well, I know there's a lot of conversation now around microplastic pollution in that, but how long have we actually known that this was an issue? I think it's it's kind of interesting that we sometimes think about um, microplastic contamination as sort of a new science um, because we've known about the presence of plastic trash in marine environments since the 1960s. Originally, uh, it was showing up in the GI systems of seabirds like albatross in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, um, but this but this knowledge wasn't really widely shared. You know, it was probably confined to a subset of marine ornithologists in the 1960s, and they're talking about it amongst themselves. Um, it certainly wasn't on the cover of National Geographic. Uh, I mean, that did happen, but it happened only two years ago. Um, so the first two scientific papers to officially document microplastic contamination in marine environments actually came out in 1971 and 1972. And I read both of them. They're very brief. They're really just a couple paragraphs each. And they essentially say, oh, by the way, there's little bits of plastic in the water. Um, and so we were pretty far at that point from a kind of 
national or international silent spring moment, you know, about microplastics where everyday people are kind of buzzing about it. Um, I think that really started to happen when a fellow named Captain Charles Moore uh, published a book called Plastic Ocean. Um, I have it right here on my desktop. <laughs> um, and I don't know that he coined the phrase Great Pacific Garbage Patch, but he certainly helped bring that idea uh, or the visual of plastic plastic garbage floating in the ocean into the American consciousness. Um, and so then momentum kind of started to pick up after that point. Uh, but the research really took off around, I would say, 2015. Um, by 2015, there was uh, uh, already there were already hundreds of papers describing this kind of contamination in marine habitats. Um, but there was sort of a pivotal moment when people were saying, okay, so there's marine, you know, plastic trash to um, wait, I eat things that are come out of the ocean, right? So there's kind of a, um, that's when we started seeing papers with titles like anthropogenic debris and seafood, you know, or microplastics and bivalves cultured for human consumption. Um, so I, I think that some of the interest in it, or some of the increased research now has to do with maybe popular interest in the topic. So while we were, I, I, just, I think it's kind of interesting the fact that we were learning about plastic waste in um, oceans in the early 1970s. And it was around that time that um, industry and designers were kind of finding all these new applications for plastics. Um, and, uh, and I think it's really important to emphasize that Americans had to learn how to adopt these habits that were centered around single use, disposability, and convenience, um, because we're so, Centering um, convenience is so commonplace now that we don't really even think about it. Um, it's this sort of uh, single-use disposable lifestyle is all my children really know, you know. Um, but it took a generation for us to learn how to adopt that. Um, it, plastic manufacturing was really just starting to pick up around uh, World War II. Um, and if you look at graphs of global plastic production over the decades, the line doesn't really yeah, start to kind of come off the x-axis until after World War II, um, which is, you know, the first original actual synthetic polymer, which is Bakelite, which emerged in 1907. Um, there just wasn't much production, you know, for a couple decades. Um, but I remember going to the History Museum in Minnesota and St. Paul and learning about Victory Gardens and all the local efforts centered around conserving materials to support our troops during World War II. So it's kind of interesting that, um, you know, we were going from slogans like use it up, wear it out, make do or do without to, you know, the GIs coming back from World War II, you know, and there's burgeoning suburbs, you know, and these houses and, you know, going from like having to restrict buying things and having, you know, um, drives to collect metals and paper and rubber and all of these things for the war effort to a place where you could just, you could be free to just fill your home with, you know, all kinds of wonderful modern things, you know. Um, and, uh, and a lot of these newer things, these newer plastic things uh, didn't actually test very well early on. People didn't really like them. For example, um, the t-shirt bags uh, that, that we're so accustomed to now, those um, came out in, in the United States in 1976. Um, but people didn't really like the fact that they had to like, you know, they didn't stand up like paper bags. And they, um, <laughs> I thought this was kind of funny, like, um, 
the clerk had to like lick his thumb, you know, to pull the plastic bag away from the the rest of them. You know, <laughs> people had an aversion to that. Um, but but then you know they were they were lighter and cheaper than paper, and so the grocery store owners decided to kind of go you know, for this. And then the rest of us just kind of went along with it. And now when you, you know, implement sort of like a, a tax on bags and try and go back to the way that it was, um, people are, they can get kind of grumpy about it, you know? Um, uh, and, uh, the same is true with, um, oh, what was another example? Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess like maybe, Maybe one last thing to say about this is just that it, it, it basically took a generation um, uh, of, you know, adopting plastic into all parts of our life. Like in 1960, my father was 12 and the average American consumed about 30 pounds of plastic um, then. Uh, and today my son is 12 and we're consuming about 300 pounds of plastic a year. Um, so that's that's a huge change to happen in a single generation. And um, there's these like there's this idea of shifting baselines where, you know, um, your parents or grandparents had a different experience than you did. And you just assume that the way that things were in your life is the way that they've always been. And so I'm like constantly talking to my children about that, you know, um, just because I think it's good to have uh, some of that perspective. I'd like to turn to discussing how we are dealing with the abundance of plastic in our waste stream. And I know for years that I've recycled, I believed that a lot of the materials I was recycling were actually being recycled at the the end of the loop after I placed them out at the curb. But from what I understand, that's not exactly what's happening. So would you be willing to let our listeners know what's what exactly is going on with plastics recycling and any share any of your thoughts on how that system is functioning or rather not functioning yeah i think i i think that um there's a general feeling certainly i thought that a lot of our plastic was being recycled but the truth is not not a large proportion of it is um and i know if you if you end up talking to some people in recycling they're probably going to have much better numbers for you but um to my knowledge, in 2018, at least, we were recycling something like less than 9% of our plastic waste uh, in the U.S. The rest of it was either incinerated or landfilled. Um, and then when we were in the thick of COVID, uh, we saw a huge bump in waste, single-use waste, um, and a drop in petroleum, which means that recycling, which was never really economically feasible, became even less so, right? Um because when you think about it, the recycling industry is in some ways in competition with the petroleum and plastics industries. I, I think it's really in their best interest to say that their products are recyclable, but not actually recycle them. Um, because it turns out even the, um, uh, you know, there, it was on Planet Money on NPR that Laura Sullivan kind of did a, a deep dive in this and found that um, even the kind of executives and the lobbyists working in the plastics industry in the 1970s, they knew that this stuff wasn't really very recyclable. Um, but as long as the rest of us thought that it was, then we could keep using it um, and it wouldn't be a problem until it ends up in, you know, human placenta, you know, <laughs> which there was a study that found, uh, it was a very small study, very small sample size, but um, so this stuff is definitely around. Um, 
some of the problems with recycling plastic comes from the fact that it's not uniform. I mean, there's literally over a thousand different types of plastics. And although the vast majority of them, about three quarters, fall into six categories, organizing all of that waste can be really tricky. Um, when you think about it, we have this very heterogeneous or diverse pile of material, and we leave it up to organizations like Eureka Recycling in the Twin Cities to just sort it out. And they do a great job with what they're given. You know, they have these optical sorters, they have this technology. Not all municipalities have that, which is another limitation. Um, but their success is also dependent on how educated the rest of us are about what we can put in our recycling bin. And then there's economic reasons too. So there's a few types of plastics where collection is is feasible um, or it's, it's economically valuable, I should say. So I think PET uh, and high density polyethylene, um, those are probably the most valuable. Um, and, you know, and, and again, your recycling people are going to have a lot better, have better insight on this because I know it depends on not just the number of bottles, but the weight, you know. Um, but I, I think the most uh, valuable uh, recycled item is, is aluminum. But I think um, the PET and HDPE fetches a pretty high price per ton um, compared to other things like glass and paper. But again, um, that's not really my area of expertise. There was a study that was published in 2017, and they calculated that uh, as of 2015, a total of 6.3 billion metric tons of plastic had been produced. And of this, 9% was recycled, 12% was incinerated, and the remaining 79% of it was just landfilled. And so if we continue, um, on this trajectory, we'll have something like 12 billion metric tons of plastic by 2050. And um, that global production, you know, has been growing. It was about 15 million metric tons in 1964. And by 2015, it was just over 300 million metric tons. But that figure, uh, which, which comes from a very reputable source, uh, um, Plastic Europe, uh, which is a, an organization a trade organization that's in support of the use of plastic, so they're reporting this stuff, but that doesn't include fibers that are made of polyethylene terephthalate, which is um, polyester, uh, polyamides, which we all know is nylon or acrylic fibers. So these things aren't even included in that total. Um, and it, it is my understanding that those fibers are actually, uh, the production of those fibers is increasing um, much faster even than the other, like the rate, I should say, is, is higher, almost like 6.6% compared to 3 or 4% for the rest of the plastics. Um, so we have to take that into consideration as well. So what is something that we can do as mere mortals to help shift the, the nature and culture of plastic use? Yeah. Um, well, um, there are a lot of individual choices. Uh, there, there are a lot of things that you know I can do as just an individual, and that's centered around changing habits. And I think when we think about habits, um, it just means that a habit is an action that's become so automatic that we it doesn't require any higher thinking. We just automatically do it. Um, and I think building those habits 
especially um, with young children is important. So my, my children's elementary school, for example, they had something called an ROT program. ROT was short for Recycling Organics Trash, where parent volunteers hung around during the lunch hour to help kids sort their waste, you know, and sometimes kids, especially like the kindergartners, would just dump their garbage on the table and kind of dash away. Um, but you have to kind of bring them back and show them that the uneaten carrots and the cheese sticks go in this bin, you know, and that the milk cartons have to be emptied and then they can go in recycling and the juice box straws, unfortunately, go in the trash. Um, but the cool thing is that like the third and fourth graders had experienced this already. So they were there helping out too. They're helping the younger kids build these habits. And I spoke to a custodian um, when I was volunteering and he said that they used to throw out 15 bags, maybe of unsorted trash before this program. And now they throw out about one to two. I mean, and so just imagine uh, what an impact we would have just in our public schools if we were doing something like that, because this is just one school. And I feel like those habits really follow people for a lifetime. I mean, I'm old enough now that my hometown of Duluth, Minnesota, didn't have curbside recycling when I was a kid. Um, it did when I became a teenager. But my dad uh, used to always collect recyclables and just bring them to a warehouse. And so I, I, I'm an inveterate recycler. I just do it. It's just been a part of my childhood. Um, and so there were times when I was younger, when I visited my brother in Chicago, I mean, when I was a young adult, and they didn't have curbside recycling at that time. And so we just had to put glass bottles in the trash. And I just, I felt like this physical aversion to it, you know, it's like one hand was putting it in and the other hand was like fighting and taking it out because it just felt so wrong to do, you know. Um, and, and another example, uh, my in-laws live in Kansas City. And so it's a suburb of Kansas City, actually, and it's a pretty affluent suburb that they live in, but they don't have curbside recycling, which um, kind of boggles my mind. But um, when we would when we go there for Christmas, we'll have like this enormous bag of recyclables and we'll just try, we'll just like beat it into the footwell of the car because there isn't much space and we'll drive it back as we're driving through Iowa, you know, we'll find a place to recycle it because it's just a habit, you know. Um, so I think when it comes to reducing plastic waste, we really have to remove any friction associated uh with plastic alternatives. Maybe that means just like um, providing every shopper with a reusable bag if they want one. And, and it also involves creating some friction where people reflexively reach for what's familiar, um, like, like some plastic disposable thing. Um, so, so there's definitely, uh, there's a lot of low hanging fruit. You know, it, I think sometimes when, when people, uh, like I wrote an op-ed piece, um, in the Star Tribune, just about the impact of uh, plastic waste in, in light of the pandemic and kind of some in industries manipulations around that. And uh, I think that sometimes people think that what I'm saying is we need to get rid of all plastic. I never said that. And I never implied that, you know, of course, there are some really amazing applications of plastic, especially when it comes to the medical, you know, field. But there's still a lot of low hanging fruit. And some of it is actually literally fruit, you know, like having bananas. I sometimes show these pictures of bananas that have been peeled and then they're put in plastic trays. Now, I know that that's not something we necessarily see, but it's not uncommon to see, you know, fruit that's kind of been packaged in PET. And I, I understand that the reason that we do that is because it's a lot more convenient to go to a grocery store and buy some fruit that's already been peeled and just eat it right out of the container. But I 
spend my work day looking at the you know the external cost that we all pay for that convenience and that's just kind of what i want to educate people about is that so that we can make a really informed decision about this um we have to be aware of the fact that uh, overuse of this material can result in contamination in our environment like in our homes so um so I, I I do encourage people whenever they can, you know, to bring their reusable bags to, you know, um, try and just be conscientious of the amount of um, of, of plastic uh, that they're consuming. But you, you don't have to be uh, obsessed with it either, you know, because I feel like you can kind of fall down a rabbit hole sometimes and just feel really racked with guilt, you know, because you used a plastic bag. It's not the end of the world. Um, uh, but, but, and, and then like maybe being super judgmental of other people because that, you know, so, um, I, I would say though, that something that we can do, uh, is, um, you know, there, there are bills that, uh, have been introduced. I think the most promising is the break free from plastic pollution act that was introduced in March of this year. And, um, so people can certainly call the representatives and tell them to support it. Um, and, and I, I also think it's just really good to let, uh, local grocery stores know and, um, uh, local restaurants, like whatever, you know, your local community, reach out to the people in your community and, uh, tell them that, that this is something that's important. And I think if they hear from you, that, that in itself is a, a really big, um, that kind of will point us in the right direction. I'd like to thank Mary Kasuth once more for joining us for this very important discussion. We will continue to take a look at plastics once we return from our break in January. This episode was developed and managed by Susie Osaki-Holm and Bruce Anderson. Production by Riverside Productions, LLC. Music by Epidemic Sound. Send us your questions and comments at host at mincentralcurrents.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching Min Central Currents. Till next time.